right, so we're recording now. Hey everyone, Cordell Davenport here, a small apartment investor. My thing that I always say is mindset plus skill set plus performance equals results. And right now, introducing once again, John's going to talk about skill sets when it comes to legal matters. John is a real estate attorney. It's the second time actually when we're going to have a conversation. I'm going to have a conversation with him. And as I learn, you guys will learn. But um, before we get started, we're going to talk about a letter of intents and purchase sale agreements. But uh, John, what have you been up to? What's new in your life? that you want to share about you well know. it's nice to yeah thank you cordell nice to see you again glad to see you're well uh covid continues to make life interesting in just about every aspect yeah. real estate wise uh you know people are being cautious about entering into transactions but I see sort of a steady increase in activity. I speak with the residential and commercial brokers practically every day. And at the end of every conversation, I always ask people, what do they see happening on the front lines? And so far, it seems like 2021 is a continuation of where we left off in 2020. So I'm hoping that with increasing vaccination rates, uh, with more access to units, because one of the issues right now is inspecting a property before you commit to buying it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tenant-occupied properties can be challenging to get into. And um, so I've seen a number of transactions just sort of remain in a state of suspended animation. I've seen other transactions fall off the table because COVID is, is inhibiting the normal process. But I'm, I'm optimistic that. There's a couple things I just thought about. I know that when, when it comes to buying, there is, um, of course, we have due diligence. You have financial due diligence, looking at the rent roll, um, looking at the trailing 12, looking at leases, verifying all that. Then you have the physical due diligence. But because of COVID, mm-hmm. if you can't walk every unit and you can't do your full inspections, that's going to be interesting because I would think when you write a contract, you have certain things embedded inside the contract that, you know, if something happens, you find something and then it can be like a credit or whatever. But if you don't have that traditional way, I don't know why anybody will make a move right now. Cause I know that me personally, I am trying to do things, but in California where we're at, I know that in June, I think June 30th, I heard an attorney, I'm from San Francisco, gave a webinar that talked about COVID. And so tenants owe money. And what he said in California is they will be able to get 80% of what is owed to them if they file these paperwork. And then at the end of June 30th, if they decide not to take the money, they can go ahead and proceed with the court proceedings and try to go to small claims court, but there's no given that's going to happen for them. So until June 30th, basically, uh, there's there's that, that pause on eviction, evicting people. But at least now, uh, some of the owners in California are going to be able to get some of that money back. But do you think that it makes sense 
just to let the dust settle or how, how are, what are you seeing? Mm-hmm. You know, um, cause like, if you can't truly, truly do your due diligence, it's, you know, you're going to get caught with somebody else's mess. And now their mess is your mess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. As I tell clients, uh, when you buy property, you step into the shoes of the previous owner, no matter how clean or unclean those shoes are. Um, it's an interesting question. You're referring to the latest piece of state legislation. It's referred to as SB 91. California has set up a, uh, a rental assistance program. As always, the devil is in the details and we don't have a lot of details yet as to how that's going to work and how much money is there and when is it going to run out. Um, but if that works, then it will provide some relief to some property owners. Mm-hmm. Um, tenants generally remain protected against eviction and will be protected against eviction if the reason for the eviction is they couldn't pay rent during COVID as a result of covid problems that they were experiencing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if and when the dust finally settles, uh, A, there will be evictions that's going to clog the courts and slow down what otherwise is supposed to be an expedited process. Um, And those are going to be evictions generally for non-COVID rent reasons. And... Otherwise, owners are going to have to go to small claims court to try to get some money, but that is not going to result in an eviction. That's just going to be compensation or or payment of monies that were owed. Transactions that I'm seeing occurring with COVID inspection problems, like I said, generally either tend to remain in suspended animation (laughs) You know, the contract, the contingency period comes up for expiration and it just gets renewed. Or there's a provision that says the contingency period doesn't start until I have access, physical access to the unit. In other cases, people are doing virtual tours and inspection. But I think you're absolutely correct that it's a, it's a risky proposition for, for buyers. Uh, but there are also some desperate sellers who are willing to take a haircut on the purchase price just to get rid of the property, either because they absolutely need the, the money or they just want to get out from being a landlord during times like this. I think, and that's when like seller financing may come into play if it's so, things like that. Because, yeah, because even yeah. I, read, I read an article that someone in San Francisco, I think, oh, like $35,000 in back pay. And he's out of work. And if you're going to try to buy something, you buy on the numbers. Like, how much money is this thing producing? And if it's not producing what, what it used to be, it's, it's going to just be a, a mess. So, it's I don't an arbitrary number. Yeah. yeah, so it's going to be interesting. Um, I think that when it comes to buying and selling, it's about um, finding problems and coming up with some solutions that that person benefits from, the other person can benefit from. Seller may have issues, 
the property may have issues. So how do you uncover that? A lot of that is fact finding, mm -hmm. figuring out motivations from people. But in this conversation we're going to have today, we talked a little bit. You said anything about you said something about contingencies. Um, I know what those are a little bit. Can you elaborate what contingencies are when it comes to the purchase and sale agreement for commercial property? Sure. Um, a contingency is just a condition that the buyer or the seller imposes on the transaction. If I have access and I am satisfied with my inspection, that could be one contingency. I need financing. And so before I commit to buying, I wanna make sure that A, the property will appraise, and this goes to the issue that you just brought up about what happens to the appraisal value of a property under COVID when nobody's getting rent and we don't know for sure what the rents are gonna be in the future. But typical contingencies are, as a buyer, I wanna inspect the property before I have to commit to buying it. I wanna make sure that I'm gonna get financing, which includes A, having the property appraised at a level high enough so that I can borrow as much as I need to in order to buy the property. And, and even with an appraisal, I just, I gotta make sure that I get approval from the lender for that loan. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there are other contingencies that buyers put into the transaction and those often include, um, I own another piece of property. And before I commit to buying your property, Cordell, I have to sell my other property because I need the money from that transaction in order to buy this transaction. And people can come up with other contingencies, but I would say, you know, inspection and financing are the two most common. Mm -hmm. And inspection, of course, means not only the physical inspection, but as you said, reviewing the rent rolls, uh, inspections also can and quite often I would say should include looking at things that are not specifically in the property, like the condition of the property, but also looking at public records in order to understand, is this property currently in compliance with local laws or does somebody think that there are code violations, right? Has the city or has the county communicated with the owner to say, you know, A, we've received a complaint and inspected, or B, we have seen that you're operating illegally for any number of reasons, including these are not legal units, or, you know, you've got electrical outlets next to the sink that aren't grounded, all kinds of different things like that. Is it... Um... There's a statement, I know there's, there's a phrase um, that says, if this, then this. So let's say there's a contingency that someone has. If this happens, then this is what we're going to do. Um, like, okay, mm -hmm. if this is broken, we want $20,000 off. Or if this is this, I want an extra 10 days. How mm -hmm. does a person figure out, okay, if this is a problem, my contingency is this, and I want to get this. Like, how do you, is it, is it the same thing recycled through contract to contract, like common, common theory or common practices that people use? Or is, is it up to the person to figure it out? 
Yeah, probably the latter. I mean, a typical contract will state uh, the expected closing date, mm-hmm. right? So depending on the property, um, that could be 30 days, it could be 60 days, it could be 90 days. And, you know, one of the other things is that there might be SBA money involved. And SBA has its own loan approval process that's different from, from the lenders. But typically the contract will say, you know, we'll sign a contract dated March 1st, and it will say closing is supposed to occur by May 1st or April 30th. So we've got roughly two months to close this transaction. During that time, I, as the buyer, want to inspect the property and I want to make sure that I get financing. So I would put in provisions that say, even though I'm supposed to close in 60 days, um, I want 21 days to inspect the property and kick the tires, so to speak. I want 28 days to get my lender's satisfactory appraisal and loan approval. And when those dates come up, 21 days, 28 days in my example, if the buyer hasn't had access to the property, then both the buyer and the seller have to agree to extend the time period for that inspection. Otherwise, the buyer could be deemed out of contract if they don't act to either remove or otherwise waive their contingency. So typically, when the process of clearing the inspections is delayed because of external factors, usually the parties can agree to some reasonable extension of time. So, okay, we'll give you another 20 days to do an inspection, and now we're going to have to extend the closing date that we otherwise thought was going to be a 60-day date. Now we're going to kick that date out further as well. But another scenario is the buyer does have access to the property, and maybe they're making an all-cash offer, so they're not worried about appraisals and financing. Mm -hmm. So the buyer has access to the property, and she doesn't like what she sees. Something about the physical condition of the property, maybe they met a tenant, uh, or, you know, tenants put nasty signs out on the door, basically saying, you know, I don't like you, I don't want you here, that kind of thing. And so the buyer then has to decide, do I still want to buy this property, or should I just walk away? And if they decide to walk away, then they would tell the seller, I haven't satisfied my contingency. I'm not going to go forward with the transaction. And then typically both the buyer and the seller will sign a cancellation and deliver it to the escrow and the buyer should get their money back, their deposit back. In other instances where the buyer isn't as afraid of the property, the buyer might say, hmm, it's not perfect, but... I can probably live with it, but seller, if you want me to stay in this deal, give me something, right? Which is, as you said, typically a discount on the price, whether it's because the roof needs replacement, the foundation is cracked, uh, there's a nasty dispute going on with a tenant that's likely to involve you know, litigation or proceedings. And so it's up to the buyer to decide, am I in? And if so, am I in under the same terms as we originally negotiated? 
or is this an opportunity for me to cut a better deal for myself? Obviously, that depends on the cooperation of the seller. Seller can just say, not interested. Take it as is or move on. Mm -hmm. And I've heard when it comes to contracts, when, you know, negotiating certain things, okay, I'm going to give you your price if you give me my terms or vice versa. That's a common thing that I've I've read tremendous Mm -hmm. amount when it comes to the negotiations. Yes. Yeah. And, um, but with regards to the contract, what, what is the most common? Is it the buyer that comes with the, the attorney with the contract or is it the seller comes with their contract and then the buyer has their attorney scratch it up and then make some addendums to it? How does that work? Well, it depends on, on a few different considerations. Um, you know, first, is the buyer working with a, with a broker or an agent? Or is the buyer representing himself? Okay. You don't have to be an attorney. (laughs) You can create your own contract, whether you find some form or create something out of whole cloth. Typically, the buyer will prepare the offer in the form of the contract. And then the seller will receive it and either accept it as is or make a counteroffer. Right? And so they may play ping pong with the contract for one or two rounds. Mm-hmm. Um, in most transactions where agents are involved, they tend to use a common form of purchase contract. The California Association of Realtors mm-hmm. publishes contracts, as you know, both residential and income property. Um, and so quite often, especially in Alameda County, there's a, a form that everybody has seen and it's mostly, you know, fill in the box, fill in the blanks and check off the appropriate boxes. In other transactions, um, I'm, I'm handling a transaction for the sale of a building, a uh, fairly big, big number. It's a custom contract. We're now three rounds into ping pong on the contract. And um, it's heavily negotiated. Every term can be heavily negotiated. Whereas often in these form contracts, people focus on one or two items. So it's a, it's a world of different possibilities depending on the property, depending on the sophistication of the owner and so on. Now, when once the parties come together, there's an agreement, meeting of the minds. Is is there someone to notarize it, or they just sign the paperwork, or they do it in front of an escrow company, or how does that work? Yeah, there are a lot of misconceptions about notaries. Um, in different countries, lawyers are referred to as notaries, especially in Latin America, or the people that we consider lawyers are are described as notaries. In, in this country, in different states, um, different documents have to be acknowledged by a notary. And essentially what that means is that the person who is signing the contract has proven their identity to the notary. A notary is a licensed person and their license is at risk if they notarize bogus documents. So 
they insist on seeing, you know, valid proof, a driver's license, a passport, a birth certificate, something like that. In most cases, signing a contract does not require a notary's acknowledgement. I mean, if, if one party is suspicious about the other party, then there's probably bigger problems in the transaction and you know, they should obtain proof of the identity of that person. Quite often that's simply using a title company, opening up an escrow and the escrow, the title company will identify according mm -hmm. to the public records who they believe is the current owner or owners. So if there's a discrepancy between, you know, Jane Smith, who's signing a contract, but according to the title company, it's actually John Jones who owns the property, then there would be some discussion and proof. But typically it's not a notary's acknowledgement. More commonly, notary acknowledgements are required in California for documents that are gonna be delivered to the county recorder and put in the public records. Okay. So private documents between, between two parties generally don't require notarization. Documents or instruments like deeds, easements, liens, things like that have to be notarized. Okay. Um, in regards, I talked a little bit about it earlier, negotiating. You know, you're going back and forth. You mentioned that one big contract to third go around. How, what kind of tactics do you see for negotiating that seems to work over and over again, and what doesn't not work over and over again. It's like someone comes in or, you know, the traditional, I want a hundred, okay, or I want 50 or to split the middle. You know, how does that all work that you see? That's a big question. Um, I guess to keep it simple, one basic rule is, who wants this deal more, okay. the buyer or the seller, right? Uh, I did another transaction where we went through a, a similar large transaction. We went through 16 rounds yeah. of kicking the purchase and sale agreement back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And my client had taken a position that was basically Buyer, when you buy this property, you are taking it as is, and I never want to hear from you again. <laughs> and you're going to sign something. And you're going to sign something in this contract. This contract is going to have sort of an extraordinary provision that says you understand and agree that you're buying this thing in whatever way, shape, or form it's in, good, bad, or ugly. And when we close, you can send me a Christmas card, but otherwise, don't call me. Right. So that's a tough sell sometimes. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the buyer hung in there long enough until we finally got the terms that the seller wanted. Unfortunately, the buyer was dissatisfied with their inspection and they went away oh, after the inspection. Oh, period. Wow. And so, so again, it, no, I bet you it, or he's probably had it back. Yeah. That's not, especially if he's working with brokers, they're not going to like to hear all that. Someone just farting around, not serious. Um, no, is, this person was serious. This this is big money. This is uh, this is uh, you know, more than twenty million dollars. Yeah. So everybody was serious. Um, 
But yeah, yeah, brokers, that's a whole different <laughs> conversation about their motivation and how they influence uh, a transaction. But again, just to, to keep it simple, uh, you know, generally speaking, uh, some people like to play hardball and they just simply insist it's going to be my way or no way. And sometimes they just keep saying no, 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 right? Until the other side either gets tired of that and says, okay, then go away. Or again, if they're motivated, they'll hang in there and they'll say, well, I'll give you a little bit of that, a little bit of that, a little bit of that. Mm -hmm. So it really depends on negotiating style. It depends on the motivation, uh, depends on other obvious factors like the physical condition of the property, whether or not there are legal problems uh, affecting the property or swirling around that could become issues, specifically landlord-tenant disputes those kinds of things. So I would say for the most part, what works is using objective factors as the reason for negotiating harder. If it's just your personality, you like to say no, you like to be the boss, you like to be the person that wins all the time, that'll work in some cases, but there's going to be a lot of cases where it's not going to work. Okay. I think so. A couple things come to mind is that um, even like probably finding third party reports that back up your viewpoint. And that's, that's kind of yep. neutral. It's not, it's not me. This is what this report says. Uh, other thing that I think about mm -hmm. reading this great book called Never Split the Difference. Uh, is, uh, I don't know if you've heard the book. Yeah. Oh, God, it's a great book. No, but I like the principle. Yeah. No, uh, that's. Chris, somebody, yeah. For you guys don't know, he, he was like an ex-FBI negotiator. Um, I took time to go through that book. I have to go through it. That's interesting. But I can't. Yeah, there's unrelated. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I was going to ask you one more question. I was going to say that. Yeah, no, but I just wanted to say that split the difference is, is, a, is a phrase that comes up often in the context of uh, mediation or arbitration of disputes. Mm -hmm. The parties are trying to negotiate to get to some sort of settlement. Party A is over here, party B is over here, and they just can't get to the middle. And then somebody says, okay, let's just split the difference. Or sometimes uh, a criticism that I've heard about arbitrators is, you know, arbitrators generally speaking are not judges. I suppose you could be a retired judge and still be an arbitrator. But, and often I hear the criticism that in arbitration, which is an alternative to a lawsuit, we could talk about that probably some other time. Uh, sometimes the rap is that in arbitration, the arbitrator doesn't do the hard work of telling somebody, sorry, you lose. And they split the difference so that you get a little bit and I get a little bit. And maybe we're both equally happy or unhappy at the result, but we're both in the same boat. And maybe both of us might one day in the future use that same arbitrator again. So splitting the difference is basically a way of avoiding the harder process of, of saying absolutely my way or no way. Yeah, the guy is uh, Chris. He says, 
the negotiation starts when the other person other person says no. That's mm-hmm. when the games begin. You want to get to right. first. So, but yeah, never split the difference. Check it out, you guys. But I'll ask you one more. And, and the other corollary, the other corollary to that Cordell is try not to negotiate against yourself. Hmm. Right. Don't hmm. just be the person who's tossing up up softballs and having the other party just hit them out of the park all the time. Or specifically in this case, uh, the example is um, uh, one party says, well, how much do you want to pay? Yeah. And the other party says X. And the first party says, nope. What else have you got? Okay. Why? No, still not good enough. How about Z? No, not good. So, don't negotiate against yourself. Try to use a reasoned or rational or logical or objective approach. And that usually is something like when you tell me you don't like what I'm offering you, then I would turn around and say, well, what do you like? Mm-hmm. Instead of me trying to guess what you like, why don't you just tell me what you like? And it's, it's about questions. I remember man, years ago, um, I went to this real estate boot camp. It was like a one day thing. Um, a guy named Ron Legrand. Uh, huh. And basically it was, if you're, if you're gonna try to buy something, you say, okay, I wanna buy something from you. And they'll say, you know, of course you don't wanna give up the first price. So you know, how much do you want? And then you can say, okay, I want a million dollars. I go, ooh, a million dollars? <laughs> Man, um, is that the best you can do? Yeah. Or, or Betty, what do you say? Okay, there's something like, okay, what's the least amount you'll be willing to take without losing sleep at night? <laughs> say your price. Like, ah. So if you don't get X amount, you're not going to do the deal. Okay, what's the least amount? So you just like ask two questions. It may go from a... A million to 800,000, just by asking the question, just pausing and don't read. So. Right. Yeah. You've heard that expression. If you don't, if you don't ask, you don't get. Mm -hmm. Right. All right. And I got our last conversation or last topic, and then we can wrap it up, John. I know you're a busy man, but we talked a lot about contracts, but how do letter of intents, LOIs relate to Contracts, why, why they're important, you know, what to look out for as well when it comes to letter of contracts. Like, what's the whole process there that you can relate to others? Well, that's a timely question because this morning I prepared a letter of intent for a client who owns commercial property. And they're about to begin discussions with uh, tenants, commercial tenants. Uh, Letters of intent, sometimes also referred to as memoranda of understanding, LOIs or MOUs, are useful tools for flushing out disagreements or issues about the major terms of a contract before you actually start drafting the contract. So it can be a good way to sort of test the other party's seriousness. And generally a letter of intent or an MOU or an LOI 
is a term sheet. That's another way of describing it. It's just a series of line items that says, who are the parties? What's the property? How much is the price? How much is the rent? What contingencies are there? Et cetera, et cetera. And usually it's one party that prepares the LOI and gives it to the other and says, here are the terms that I'm expecting. Can you live with this or not? And so hopefully you cut down on the number of uh, hours and the number of dollars spent trying to negotiate the transaction because you find out quickly you and the other party are just in completely different solar systems. You're not, you're not even in the same general vicinity as each other and maybe it's not worth it. Okay. Or you find out that you are close and then you can come to some understanding about the price or some of these other terms. The important thing also to understand about LOIs and MOUs is that in general, they should not be binding contracts. However, people make the mistakes of preparing LOIs and not putting in the right qualifying language. And unwittingly, when both parties have signed the LOI, suddenly there's a contract. Mm. And LOIs can be you know, short. It can be a page, it can be two pages or three pages, whereas the contract itself, the lease or the PSA, the purchase and sale agreement, might be 40 or 50 pages. But if you write an LOI that doesn't have the right language that says, hey, we're just talking here. We don't have a deal until there's a lease or a PSA that we both agree on that has our signatures on it, okay? So important to note that LOIs can backfire if you're not aware that it could become a contract and you don't put in the appropriate language. And LOIs can be a good thing to flush out issues early, quickly, and inexpensively before the parties make the commitment to do the heavy lifting of then going on to that 40 or 50 page contract. So a good LOI is like a roadmap for the person who's drafting the contract. There are still other provisions in the contract that aren't addressed in the LOI. The LOI typically concentrates on the material economic and legal terms. It's like the pillar Price, of the contract. Yeah, basically, yeah. It's the, yeah, it's the, the foundation mm -hmm. of the contract. But there could still be details in the actual contract that the parties might not be able to get over. So signing an LOI doesn't obligate uh, anybody. There are some other cautions uh, to bear in mind. Among them is that if the LOI says the parties will negotiate a contract, then under California law, there's an obligation in the context of negotiating contracts to act in good faith, right? So you and I sign an LOI and we say in the LOI, now we're gonna go out and, and you know, negotiate the rest of the contract. Uh, that means both of us have to take you know, somewhat reasonable positions. We can't just suddenly arbitrarily pull out of negotiations. I don't feel like talking to you anymore, right? You could be sued for that. So an LOI, in addition to having certain basic terms, also has to make it clear whether it's binding or not binding, 
whether portions of it are binding, other portions may not be binding. Binding portions might be, for example, uh, you and I are both going to keep this conversation confidential. We're not going to tell anybody else about this. Or you, the seller, agree that you're not going to negotiate with anybody else while you and I continue to negotiate the terms of the contract. Okay. So there's important stuff to put in an LOI in addition to the basic terms that you're trying to flush out. And the additional stuff is to protect the parties against the possibility that they unwittingly have made a contract or that they have somehow bound themselves to continue to talk to the other side and negotiate even when they don't feel like it. So they're simple, they're simple documents, but they have like most documents, you know, trap doors and, and potholes in them that you also need to be aware of. Okay. All right. Well, that's it. And, and let me just say, let me just say in larger transactions, uh, you typically see LOIs in advance of the agreement and if I can just say from a personal point of view, at least half the time that clients ask me to prepare or review uh, commercial leases or purchase contracts, they've already signed the LOI and they've already made some sort of commitment on some of those terms, right? It's not necessarily a binding contract, but you and I have both agreed that the price is going to be 1.5 million. And so, you know, when you come to me and uh, you say, here, would you look at this? I might say, really, is 1.5 the right price? Maybe it should have been like 1.1 or something else due to these other circumstances. Okay. So does, this, so, does the seller need to sign so, or is it just the, the, the buyer? Well, it, one, like I said, one party, one party prepares the LOI for the other party to sign and say, yeah, I agree to these basic roadmap milestones. Okay. But my point that I was going to make is uh, often brokers are involved in the drafting of LOIs. And if you've got a good broker, that could be good. That could be all right. Uh, like I say, at least half the time, um, I only hear about the transaction after the LOI is signed. And sometimes in that context, I have to tell the client, gosh, it's too bad you made that commitment. You know, maybe we should have talked at least two days before you signed the LOI so that you had more information going into that LOI. So. That's the same. Anyway. Once the two pages out the two, you can't put it back. Yeah, right, right. All right, well, thank you for the conversation, John. And um, everyone, go thank to you. the website, smallapartmentinvestors.com. Tons of stuff on there. John, how can people get in contact with you with their needs or questions? Uh, I don't know if you have a link on your website to mine. Otherwise, they can find me. Uh, at the law office of John Gutierrez, that's G-U-T-I-E-R-R-E-Z, uh, or John at jgutierrezlaw.com. Okay, great. And on the website, you guys, you can see the first episode that I have with John. 
and then we continue to do these out and have other things, other videos and all kind of stuff. So thank you all. Hope this has been helpful for you to take some action and, but the right action, not all action equals progress. So just make some progress. Thank you for your time. Cordell, always, Cordell, always a pleasure. Take care, everyone. See All you right. soon. Okay. Bye now.